Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. And while you are turning there, uh, I want to read for you Colossians 1, 13 through 14. Again, I know our band just, um, just read that for us a few minutes ago. Uh, but I want you to read it, and I want you to just kind of keep it in the back of your mind as we kind of walk through this message. And so here's what it says. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so just keep that in the back of your mind as we as we walk through this, that there's a domain of darkness, that there's a kingdom of the beloved son, and that we're in one of them. And that God comes in, steps in, and that he does the work of delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of the beloved son. Because you're going to see that play out in several different ways as we look at this text today. Now, most of you know that I, um, I enjoy golfing. Um, or maybe a better way to say it is that I golf frequently and then sometimes I enjoy it. Um, but there's a term in golfing called uh, club forgiveness, or just forgiveness in short. And it's when the design of a club uh, allows for there to be lesser effects of a bad swing. And so the design of a club can literally help you if you have a really bad slice like what I do. Um, and so with, with a poor club, that slice is likely going to go way out of bounds and, and probably even into another um, fairway on the other side. But with club forgiveness, it allows for those bad swings to have a lesser effect. And so instead of going out of bounds, it might be able to just land, you know, in the rough just off the side of the fairway. And so I recently purchased a driver, um, well, this probably would have been either last Christmas or the Christmas before. I used some Christmas gift cards, and I got a driver, and it actually, like, it works. Like, my, my slice is lesser than when it used to be. But there's one thing that club forgiveness, or at least the golf term forgiveness, can't do, is it does not have the power to make my drive or my shot perfect. It just, it just can't do it, all right? It, it doesn't have that type of miracle power uh, to make my golf shot perfect. But what I want to show you today is the kind of forgiveness power that Jesus has, the kind of power that takes your horrible existence and actually makes it perfect. The kind of power that takes your horrible existence and makes it perfect. The kind of forgiveness that literally delivers you from the domain of darkness and it transfers you to the kingdom of the beloved son. I want to show you the great links Jesus went through in order to redeem us, to restore us, and to ultimately forgive us. Am I on or did I cut out? Am I on? I think I'm on. Okay. Um, sorry, sad note there. Now, if you recall from last week, for those, of, for those of you who are with us, we looked at Jesus and the disciples setting sail from Galilee to get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And what happened while they were on that journey was there was a great windstorm that came, and the disciples, they believed that they were literally perishing, all right? They believed that they were going to go down with the ship. They believed that they were dying in the moment. And does anybody remember what Jesus was doing at the time? Sleeping, all right? He's in the stern of the boat on a cushion. He is sleeping, 
through this storm. And what the disciples end up doing is they try to wake up Jesus. They wake him up and they say, hey, we're perishing. Do you not care about us? Do you not care that we live? And Jesus gets up and he does two things. One, he rebukes the storm. He calms the seas. And he also rebukes the disciples by saying to them, where is your faith? Why did you not believe me when I said that we need to get to the other, other side of the sea? And so again, if you're one of those types of people who maybe struggles with believing Jesus or struggles with taking him at his word, then go back and listen to that sermon because we kind of walked through that and unpacked that in detail. But the reason why I bring that up is because there's a reason why Jesus set sail. There's a reason why he wanted to get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. That's what we're going to be looking at. Because that was his objective. His objective is to get to the other side. What we eventually see down in verse 40 that Josh will pick up with next week as he preaches this is that he literally then just returns back to Galilee. So there's only one reason for why he's going, one reason for why he's putting the disciples through the endangerment that he put them in is to get them to the other side for one objective. Literally for one thing to happen and then returns back. And so the question is, why was it so important for him to be willing to endanger them, or at least in their mind be endangered? Why go through all of that trouble for one stop, and as we'll see, the country of the Gerasenes, opposite of Galilee? Well, I want to show you that today. And my prayer is that as I show you the one reason of why he went to the other side, I hope that you marvel at the work of Jesus I hope that you marvel at the work of Jesus. I hope that you see him and that you treasure him in a beautiful way today, maybe then before you walked in here. And so we're just going to walk through this passage, and then I'll close with kind of three takeaways um, as we look at this. So Luke 8, 26 through 39 is what we're going to be looking at today. Let's read it, and uh, we'll pray that the Holy Spirit reveals just the goodness of God to our minds and our hearts this morning. And again, just bear with me. I know you can hear it. I've just been like congested the last couple of days, and so I'm working through it, all right? Starting in verse 26. And I'll kind of work through this, and I'll stop and pause and give you some descriptions of what's going on here. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Now, I want to give you some things to mention here in regards to the importance of this region and the context of our story. The Gerasenes are opposite of Galilee, not just opposite of the sea, but also opposite in everything, essentially, except for the fact that they're human, all right? They, they are human, so they are like the Galileans in that regard, but other than that, um, in Galilee, you have Jews, all right? The Gerasenes are considered Gentiles, so it's everybody who's on the outside of Jewish culture, Jewish lineage, Jewish privilege, all of those things, so you have, they are Gentiles. In addition to that, they're considered unclean because they are Gentiles, all right? So Jews don't interact with Gentiles. We, we, they don't go there. Even more, as we'll see here in a minute, they are herdsmen, all right? They're pig farmers, all right? If you know anything about Jewish culture, uh, they don't like pigs, all right? They don't touch pigs. They don't eat pigs. They don't deal with pigs. Nothing with pigs, all right? These are herdsmen, all right? So they would not only consider them unclean as Gentiles, but literally their business is everything that they consider to be unclean, all right? So we don't even want to touch you because you're Gentiles, but we really don't even want to be, be near you or close to you because of your trade. In addition to that, lastly, what you'll see is that Jesus ends up meeting a Gentile man who is also living among the tombs 
among the dead. And that is, again, according to Jewish culture and customs, to be the most unclean thing you could possibly do. Do not go near the dead. Do not go near the tombs. And so I could picture the disciples being like, are you serious, Jesus? Like, you risked our lives for this? Like, they're not worthy to be called a son or daughter of the Most High God. But Jesus has come to seek and to save that which is lost, right? Jesus has come for the sick, not the healthy. So let's keep reading. When Jesus stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. So Jesus here, he gets out of the boat, and he's met by a man. And actually, if you, if you do some work in the original language, that idea of being met by a man in this regard was not just like a, hey, what's up, How, how's it going, welcome to the land of the Gerasenes, I have demons. No, like, this man's ready to fight. Like, he was met almost in, in a sense of like two battles or two, two uh, armies coming together to meet in order to fight with one another. He's met by a man, and it says this man was from the city. He used to have a house there, but, and apparently used to wear clothes. So there's obviously something that has happened to alter this man's life drastically. Well, it says he had demons. So these demons, they have suppressed him and, and oppressed him, and tortured this man that it's literally driven him away from his home, now to be homeless. They've driven him away from his community to now be alone. They've stripped him of his clothes so that he now experienced the greatest levels of shame um, imaginable. And they've now forced him to live literally among the dead, as if he's the living dead. As for someone who is still alive, I don't know of a worse situation than what this man is having to experience. No home, no family, no job, no clothes, no community. And on top of that, he has multiple demons that are tormenting him. I'm going to show you this. Verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell down before him and he said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. It was kept, uh, he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. In a parallel passage of this account, in Mark 5, 3 through 5, it, it gives a little bit more detail of this man's condition. It says this, He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and chains but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. I mean, this man is just in unimaginable oppression and torture from these evil, sinful, wretched demons. And if you're wondering what demons are, sometime, or, or sometime between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, there was this rebellion in heaven 
um, by angels against God. And this rebellion was led by one specific angel um, that we refer to as Satan, who was called Lucifer as well in other translations. And he was considered to be one of the, the most beautiful of all angels. Filled with pride, he wanted God's throne. He wanted to ascend even above God's throne. And so he tried to take it. And he convinced a third of the angels to follow him in this rebellion in heaven. Um, and in case you're wondering, it's never going to be a fair fight if you try to fight against God. Like, just, you don't get a punch in. Like, nobody ever wins in any kind of fight against God. And so what God does is he casts out Lucifer and the third of the angels who followed him. And you can see descriptions of this in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 and Revelation 12. You can see the end of the story when you get down to Revelation 20 and what ultimately happens. Like this, he never had a chance. Never had a chance. But one of the questions I had was, as I was kind of walking through this, was, all right, I, I get it that filled with pride, wanted to take God's throne, didn't. God cast him out of heaven along with the third of the angels, which became the demons. They land here in earth. Why then oppress people? Why then oppress people? Why go after us? Why torment and torture them? Like what did they ever do to the devil and the demons, right? In heaven, after Michael and the heavenly angels defeated Satan and the rebellious angels, a.k.a. demons, they were cast down to earth. Revelation 12, 12 puts it this way. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. He's angry. He's angry. Revelation 12, 17 puts it this way, and I'll paraphrase this verse for you. Then the dragon became furious and he made war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So there's two reasons for it. One, he's a sore loser. And two, he hates everyone who loves God. So in being a sore loser, he doesn't want anyone getting to experience the beauty and the love and the majesty that God bestows to them. He doesn't want anyone in relationship with God. So he's going to do anything and everything he can along with the enemy. That's the term I give to the devil, evil, Satan, all of the demons as well. The enemy does not want us to get to experience the beauty and the wonder of heaven and in relationship with God for eternity. They don't want us to experience it because they know they don't get a chance either. They're angry. They're filled with wrath. In addition to that, those who do keep the commandments and those who do hold to the testimony of Jesus, better way to say it, they're going to make your life a living hell. That's their goal. This side of glory, this is the closest you're ever going to experience in hell. For those who are going to hell, this is the closest thing that you'll ever experience in heaven. Satan and the demons are the sorest losers the world will ever know. And if they can't win, their goal is for no one else to win either. Now, before you think that there's any chance that they have, the demons just spoke to Jesus, begging him not to torment them. You see, they know. 
They know. Some of the, if you walk through the scriptures, especially the gospels, anytime Jesus shows up on the scene and a demon is there, you get some of the greatest Christology that has ever spoken because they know who Jesus is. Every single time they say, you are the son of the most high God. You are the Christ. You're the chosen one. Are you here to destroy us? Are you here to torment us? Is our time over? Look at the text, what it says. Jesus then asked them, or asked him, what is your name? And he said, and this is where there's so much deep oppression here that the demons are speaking on behalf of this man. Legion is the name. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. See, they know. They know what their end is. That's a, re- that's a reference to Revelation 20 and what their end is. There will come a day where Jesus will take Satan. And like, hell is not a place where Satan and the demons get to rule and reign and just usher in punishment for everyone else that comes there. Like, it's not a party for them. They get to experience the exact same thing for those who don't believe and trust in Jesus and get their sins paid for. Like, they are going to be cast into the lake of fire. They are going to be thrown into the abyss. They are going to be tormented and tortured for eternity because of their rebellion against God. Not command them to depart into the abyss. It says now, in verse 32, Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the, sheep, or down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. I'm going to continue reading here. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. All right, remember the condition of the man before Jesus. Oppressed, homeless, naked, ashamed, self-harming. I mean, he was trying to kill himself, alone, wishing to be dead. But God, God, being rich in mercy, he healed this man. And now this man is no longer oppressed. He's clothed. He's in his right mind. And he will soon be allowed to return to his home, to his community. You see, God doesn't only save, but He also restores. He restores. And that's exactly what He's doing with each one of us. We see in verse 37 here, Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. They, they, just, they didn't know what to do with Jesus yet. So He got into the boat, and then He returned. And the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. 
And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. I always caught that kind of off guard there for a second where this man, I mean, if there's anyone who's ever going to practice full allegiance to somebody, this man's all in on Jesus, right? I mean, given the condition that he was in, and for Jesus to not only save him from that condition, forgive him of his sins, and at the same time restore him, getting rid of his shame, clothing him, getting him back into his right mind, not having those oppression thoughts anymore, and at the same time being able to allow him to be just fully healed. Healed. Like this man's going, whatever you ask of me, I'm doing it. Wherever you go, I want to go. I'm all in on you, Jesus. And that's what this man wanted. When Jesus is getting back into the boat, he wants to go wherever Jesus goes. And so my question was, why did Jesus not allow him to follow him? Why not at this point let him be the 13th disciple? And I think it's a picture for what's really going on for all of us is that what, what this man really wanted was he, he's experiencing the, I was in the domain of darkness, and you just delivered me. And you transferred me to the kingdom of the beloved Son. And I want all of the Son right now. But glory's not here yet. It's not here yet. And there's work for us to do. And I think it's strategy here for Jesus to say, look, right now maybe you're, you know, I know you're a Gentile. I know you don't have access to all the scriptures that, that the Jews have access to up to this point. You don't understand quite yet the promised Holy Spirit that's going to come to you because that will come after I'm crucified and died and resurrected and then the Holy Spirit will be sent. I, I know you don't understand these things yet. But even though I'm getting in the boat and I'm leaving you to go back to the other side, I'm going to send you on mission. You will be comforted and you will have me in all access at all times, even though I'm going to the other side of the lake. I'm going to send you the Spirit. And the Spirit's going to be with you. And the Spirit's going to comfort you. And the Spirit's going to testify on your behalf that you are a son and daughter. And that you do belong. We're all experiencing this same thing right now. We're all groaning for the day in which we get to go be with Jesus and there is no more pain, there is no more tears, there is no more oppression, there is no more of any of those things. We want to be there. But Jesus is saying, go, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Declare how much God has done for you. And I think that's what we're seeing here. What we're seeing really in this entire story is some of the smallest versions of the entire narrative of the Bible, are we not? We're seeing it played out. The whole thing played out in this one story here. And so I want to give you three takeaways for this passage um, for us to be able to, to kind of apply to our life as, as we work this stuff out. The first one is, is that Jesus meets you where you are. All right? Jesus, Jesus comes to you. He comes to us. All we see in the Gospels is that Jesus came across the sea for this one man, it, which technically there's two. All right? If you go look at the Matthew account, there's two. Um, but they primarily highlight this one man. 
Jesus went to great lengths in order to save and free this man from the bondage of sin and oppression that he was in. Jesus goes to the domain of darkness to find him. I mean, you, you can't give a physical setting of the domain of darkness more than where Jesus meets this man. Among the tombs, just literally thrashing himself among the rocks. So as he's coming down, he's probably bruised and bloody among the tombs, oppressed by demons, having them torment him. I mean, it's a picture of hell that this man is living in. And Jesus enters into this domain of darkness. You see, you don't have to clean yourself up. That's the beauty of the gospel. Like church, in a weird way, if you were to go ask a lot of people, like, hey, how come you don't go to church? Well, you know, it's not that I'm like anti-church. It's just maybe I need to get some things in order in my life first before I go do that. I mean, how many times have you heard, like, if I walk through the doors of the church, it's going to burn the place down? You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to be rid of your shame in order for Jesus to come to you. Actually, it's at your worst where Jesus meets you. It's at your worst when he comes to you. And from there, the second thing is that Jesus restores you to the image of God and to the family of God. So Jesus meets you where you are, and when he meets you there, he restores you to the image of God and the family of God. We use the phrasing, sinners becoming saints. Orphans becoming sons and daughters. Those who are dead in their trespasses now becoming disciples who are alive in the Spirit of God. He restores you to the image of God. You see, he looks at this Gentile man, and he knows him by name. He knows his real name. And he says, because of sin, who I created you to be is fractured. I created you in my image, according to Genesis 1 and 2. Nothing else in all of creation. When you see the Grand Canyon, and you're like, man, God is amazing. Yes, but that's fingerprints. That's not image. He created it. It shows his, how amazing he is. When you first see the ocean, and you see the expanse of it, you realize how small you are, how big creation is, but even more how much greater God is. You, you, you experience those things when you see creation. But when we look at humans, there should be a greater awestruck and marvel of the design and the intricacy that goes into both the macro and the micro of human that is the only thing in all of creation that is in the image of God. Marvel. And because of our sin, we can't see it. We can't see it. But when Christ restores us, and we start to have Christ begin working throughout us and 
imaging us correctly so that we're reflecting correctly. So it's almost like a mirror. We're just radiating the glory of God and what He's designed us to look like and what He's designed us to be and function and how the fruit of the Spirit works out in our lives to where the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the gentleness and the self-control is all working itself out in our lives when you experience someone reflecting the image of God because they've been restored to it, we marvel. We marvel. And we marvel primarily because in our culture right now, our culture is telling us to to be impatient. And to to not necessarily, I mean, again, you you can drive around the city, you'll see signs, no slate of hate. And I understand what it's trying to say. But it's not getting there via the proper route. The only way for us to actually get to a place of kindness is through the Spirit of God that created kindness and restores it in us by Jesus Christ living inside of us and living out kindness in us so that when someone else in, like, interacts, like there's kindness of the world and then there's kindness of heaven. One is imitation, and the other is incarnation. Which one is being flown out of us or or worked through us when it comes to him restoring us to the image of God and to the family of God? And from there, what he does is he then sends you to declare how much God has done for you. I mean, this is the whole narrative of the Bible. Jesus comes to meet us where we are, Restores us to the image of God and then gives us a job. Hey, go and do unto others what I've done unto you. Go and declare to others how much God has done for you. This is evangelism. This is just walking up to someone in your neighborhood, someone in your, your workplace, someone in your gym, someone wherever. That's why, like, if you actually look at the original language of Matthew 28, go and make disciples, go is actually more translated as as you are going. As you are living and breathing, make disciples. As you are living and breathing, you are walking around asking people, can I tell you what Jesus has done for me? Can I tell you what Jesus has done for me? I'm not trying to get into like apologetics here, and I'm not trying to get into debates. What you cannot debate is what Jesus has done for me. You don't get to tell me that's not true. And so we go and we declare the good news of Jesus. You see, there's great irony in this story. As I first mentioned, Jesus set sail. The disciples believed they were going to die in a wooden boat while Jesus was resting. In order for Jesus to get to the other side and heal a man who is on the cusp of death, living among the tombs, oppressed by demons, and trying to kill himself. The bigger story of the Bible is that Jesus set sail from heaven to earth. And while we rest in his grace and mercy, Jesus hangs on a wooden cross, becomes cursed by sin, evil, and death. He gets buried among the tombs, satisfies the wrath of God so that God can then bring Jesus back to life and is now able to free us of our vices. 
Free us from our shackles. Redeem us and forgive us of all of our sins. Because Jesus paid it all and he did it all. We can now accept his sacrifice on our behalf. Today we get to celebrate this reality in two ways. Baptism and communion. The Lord's Supper. We have the joy and privilege to baptize Adelaide this morning. And so Adelaide, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and come on up here. And I'll have Travis and Jess head over there. We've had the opportunity to meet with Adelaide and Travis and Jess, and we've heard her profession of faith um, and her understanding of what Jesus has done in her life to forgive her of her sins, to grant her eternal life in Jesus. And I'd love for you to be able to hear it from her as well. So I'm going to ask um, a couple of questions, and Adelaide has prepared them on paper. So you can set them right there if you want. And so the first question I'm going to ask you so that you can be able to share with everyone as well is, what was life like before you asked Jesus into it, and why did you think you needed Jesus? Hello. We're good. Well, before I really knew Jesus, my heart was filled with sin, but I didn't realize it yet. When I heard about Jesus, I heard a lot of good things about him. I learned that he was a perfect man on earth. He was also fully God. He helped a lot of people. He loves me very much. He gave his own life to give me freedom from my sins. I have learned that I have been in a sinner since I was born. And that my sin comes from within the, in me. That means that I always have a choice to sin or to not sin. Jesus is the only human in the world that has never sinned. Sin breaks God's heart and makes him angry. And when I sin, I have to be separated from him. In Romans 6, 23, God tells me that I deserve to die to pay for, for my sin. I do not want to break God's heart, and I also don't want to die. So I wanted to learn how Jesus could save me. That's awesome. How did you commit your life to Jesus, and uh, who told you about Jesus? I told my mom I wanted to get baptized so that I can be more like Jesus. She said that baptism is a way to show others that I believe in Jesus. Death is to pay for my sins, and I believe that he rose again to defeat death. She said that we could learn more about Jesus, I mean more about what it means to follow Jesus together. And I would know when I was ready to get baptized. We have been studying the Bible together. We also did a workbook together about faith and baptism. I have learned that I could never earn God's love or a place in heaven. It is a free gift that God has given us because he loves us so much in all that we do to accept the, his gift and believe in him. I am happy that God gives me a free 
his love for free because it would be really hard to be as good as Jesus. <laughs> now that I know Jesus and understand what he did for me, it makes me sad whenever I know I sin. I talked to Jesus by praying to him and I asked him for, for forgiveness. For all of my sins, I asked him, Jesus, will you come into my heart and take control of my life so I can be more like you. Thank you for loving me enough to die on the cross so I may live forever with you in heaven. I believe that I am your child and I am so, so happy for your gift of eternal life. And last question for you. How is your life different now that you have believed in Jesus? I believe that Jesus has always been in my life. Before I decided to be more like Jesus, I usually did what I wanted and whatever made me happy, unless my parents or my teachers said no. <laughs> now I try to be less sinful, and I try to have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I feel happy and safe and calm because I know God loves me and will always take care of me. Amen. That's awesome. All right, I'm going to let you head on over and go ahead and step into the water. Did you hold on to that? And what I would like for some of us to do in the room, if you have taught any of the classes in our little district that Adelaide has been a part of, I'm going to ask you to stand. If you've also participated in community group with Adelaide or the Healy's as well, I'm going to ask you to stand as well. Um, just as an illustration that we are together in this and that one of those things that we ask when we dedicate our children is that we ask for the church to come alongside and to um, teach them Jesus and to share Jesus with them and to pour Jesus into them. And so not only has this been a conversation going on between Adelaide and her parents, uh, but this is something that we have come alongside the parents and have supported them in just continuing to just show Jesus that has led Adelaide to this point as well. And so, Adelaide, by your profession of faith in Jesus, it is our privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. <laughs> For those that don't know, the heater was not working, so the water's a little chilly. But, um, well, church, as we enter into this time of communion and the Lord's Supper, what we just got to watch and celebrate is the fact that Jesus saves, and that He saves, that He takes us from the domain of darkness and He transfers us and delivers us to the kingdom of the beloved Son, and that we are buried with Christ through baptism. We are buried with Him just like He was buried. And then three days later, He was risen from the grave, rose to a new life that we now have 
in Him. And we get to celebrate this. We get to do all of this because of His sacrifice for us on the cross. And so I'm going to ask everyone to stand in this room. If you believe in Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, if you believe that He is the Son of God, that He died the death that you deserve, that He rose three days later in order to guarantee, because the, again, the wrath of God was satisfied because of His payment for sins. He rose three days later. And he brings us back to life as well. He restores us. He restores us. And so if you believe that, I want to invite you down to partake with us in the Lord's Supper by grabbing the elements and then coming back to your seats. And we will partake together um, once you get back to your seats.